Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. A man goes to an epidemiologist and asks him, Sir, I want to know when this pandemic's going to be over. How should I know? The epidemiologist replies, I'm not a politician. Ah yes, dad jokes. It's been six years now now that I've been marshalling that convenient excuse and uh, I'm just going to stick by it. But I do want to begin this week's show on a positive note, if I may. Goodness knows there's no shortage of misery and suffering in the world right now. So without wishing to diminish any of that, Uh, I must say I was inspired and humbled by the dozens of messages and support that came across my desk over this uh, last seven days after we penned the open letter to Australia just last week, imploring politicians there to do the right thing. I think Aussie should remember that little jingle from the Don't Litter ads back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, we did indeed receive a Niagara of, uh, of emails, of tweets and likes and shares and retweets and uh, direct messages and, and all the rest uh, from Aussies around the world and at home who wrote in to uh, share their stories and who kindly helped spread the word with regards to the lockdown and in particular the lockout situation. Uh, ongoing there in Australia with with the hard border closures. Uh, we heard from a mother in Finland who's been trying to get her family back to Australia for the past year. Uh, another one wrote in from Singapore where she is with two of her four children, the other two being uh, in Australia. So she's had to suffer a split family uh, for the past several months, which cannot have been easy. Uh, And I'm just looking down the emails here, but it goes on and on. People from from Ecuador, from Thailand. There's one here from Memphis, Tennessee, um, from uh, from England, from Scotland and India, of course, uh, where repatriation flights have only just begun returning to Australia this week. uh, Although with only three flights scheduled thus far to bring back uh, 900 of the 9000 Australians that are stranded over there. Uh, obviously, plenty more needs to be done. Um, but what are we talking about here? This is the right of return. That is an individual's right to return to or to re-enter their country of citizenship. Uh, this is, I don't think many people realize, uh, but a fundamental uh, foundational principle of both international and natural law. Uh, This is something that is enshrined in a multitude of human rights uh, declarations, including the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and the Geneva Convention 
This is not trivial, in other words, and not to be dismissed on a whim or even temporarily suspended. Uh, so it, it is heartening to know uh, that so many people actually care about this situation, that they're willing to have uncomfortable conversations, uh, and that they're willing to write to their media and to their so-called representatives, duly elected, uh, to stand up for their rights and to demand change. It was uh, Winston Churchill, I believe, who said something along the lines of, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is that good men do nothing. So uh, yes, just to kick off this week's show, I do want to thank to all those who wrote in and shared the open letter, uh, which of course you can find on the bonaprivateresearch.com website. So please head over there and, uh, and share it amongst your Aussies, both at home and abroad. And I think the more we can get the word out um, and make people aware of, of the situation with regards to the lockdowns and, and lockouts, uh, then the more effective and impactful our message will be. Uh, speaking of all this, I caught up this week with co-author of the Bonner-Denning letter and a member of the so-called Aussie diaspora in Mr. Dan Denning, who currently resides in Colorado, but who proudly spent uh, a happy and long decade down in Melbourne, uh, his, his adopted home down there in Victoria. Uh, he and I spoke about the situation down under vis-a-vis -vis immigration and border closures, the lockdowns and lockouts, plus the importance of standing up for your hard-won rights and liberties. Dan also mused on the inflationary creep going on over in the US and elsewhere around the West, where prices for raw materials, that is lumber, iron ore, base metals, etc., are now beginning to seep into the broader economy in a very real way. Some of the numbers there are particularly uh, concerning. Uh, for those of us who consume you know, energy and food, uh, this means, of course, higher prices at the store and at the pump. And for those who live at or near the margin, which, as we saw over just this past year, is many more people than we might think, uh, that means some very tough decisions ahead. Uh, so we'll get to that and uh, plenty more in my conversation with Dan up next. I was thinking we could we could uh, start off where we left off last week when our connection was interrupted, just talking about uh, the state of affairs in my home country and your sometimes other country uh, that being Australia. Are you, by the way, I, I wasn't sure of this, but you have your Australian passport. Is that correct? Yeah. And I actually would go one step further and say that I am an Australian citizen. Like I, oh, yeah. I, uh, there you go. Okay. A, a co-member of the, of the Aussie diaspora. Um, yeah. I mean, I embraced it. I, I lived there for 10 years almost, and I have a football team and I've been a member of that football team for longer than 10 years. Yeah. And, uh, I still say mate, and yep. uh, <laughs> to those who deserve it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. In the right situation. But, uh, but I read idea. your essay and um, we did talk about it a little bit before uh, our connection broke up, but it's a really troubling, troubling political trend. It's a troubling social trend. And as you pointed out, economically, it's, it's not possible to isolate yourself indefinitely from the rest of the world. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I think people, you make a very important point whenever we talk about 
um, political affairs like this, uh, and that's that it's very important to separate out the the people who are living within a given uh, political boundary um, and the government that claims ownership or responsibility over those people. Um, and so in writing that uh, open letter to Australia, I was really kind of a, um, attacking or having a go, at we say, as we say in Australia, at the political class and the way that I feel like, and many people abroad um, feel like, many Aussies abroad in particular, uh, feel like they're hoodwinking the, the citizens at home. And uh, just for one point of contact, I, I spent um, a, a good hour on the phone the other day with a dear friend of mine uh, in Brisbane who was walking me through a play-by-play -play of the evening news. And, you know, it, it, the sequence went something like, as I shared with you in an email, something like, uh, you know, horrific, heartbreaking scenes from um, impoverished third world countries around the world and, you know, real, I mean, there's no shortage of, of, of footage that, that really does wrench the heart. Uh, that cutting directly to um, the, and, you know, some details about the Australian federal budget and slipped in there, oh, by the way, the borders will likely remain uh, closed in some form until mid 2022 uh and then followed with you know some up updates on the local sports scores and some pictures of pretty beaches and you know the, the the general theme there being look what's happening in the big bad world uh don't worry we're here to keep you safe and look how good you've got it um you know shouldn't you be thankful that we've got your back and that we're protecting you from the rest of the world this is this of course is happening right uh, in the lead up to a federal election, which will be called later this year or maybe early uh, 2022. And that seems to be one of the oldest tricks in the book for politicians seeking uh, election or re-election in this case, is to you know strike fear into the hearts of their citizens and then promise them a little safety. Is that, is that something like your read on the, uh, on the situation in Australia? Yeah, I think there's, there's two or three elements in there common to what's going on all over the world, but what what makes it so effective in Australia? Uh, one is is the media isolation as well. When you get your news from the ABC, the BBC, and CNN, um, or people still watch network news in Australia, they still watch Channel Ten, Channel Seven, Channel Nine, and that narrative is completely dominated by a certain type of thinking and. Uh, and so there's no other alternative voices. There's no other counter narrative. So when you control the message and the message is fear, then it's not surprising that, that that's what you get. Uh, and so the level of compliance from sensible people uh, is astonishingly high because they think, well, you know, they've done a good job. We've almost eradicated it. And, you know, too bad for those people overseas who aren't here. That's probably their own fault for not getting back sooner. And we got to keep all of us safe. So, uh, you know, in some ways, I think it's the uh, it's the worst aspects of the lackadaisical character of Australians, which is usually admirable. You know that you take things easy and nothing's too stressful. But uh, and also, my experience and yours is probably more acute than mine. It's one of the few countries in the English speaking world where there is not a high level of cynicism or distrust 
of government. <laughs> mm, right. Uh, and you know, maybe maybe at the at the grassroots level there is. People are people no matter where you are, and they understand the the, the con game. But uh within the media, within academia, within respectable social circles, you know, there's still a high degree of belief that government is benign influence. Its job is to keep us safe. And when all these things have, have it's like a perfect storm for people signing away their civil liberties and they think it doesn't matter it's an emergency you're selfish greedy and we don't need a bill of rights so uh disappointing but i i guess you know i won't be i won't be visiting this year or next unfortunately yeah yeah nor will um nor will i or my uh, you know i'm more concerned about uh my my six-year-old daughter for example who will have to go quite a few years without uh seeing our grandparents or, or uh, maybe Australia, but I, you raise a really interesting point there uh, with regard to a, a compliance, at least amongst the, the kind of establishment or the chattering class uh, of the media and, and you know, the, the pundits, which, which are not as apt to, to really dig in and question uh, what goes on uh, in Parliament, as say it would be uh, in the in the UK during question time, grilling the Prime Minister, or certainly in the United States, uh, a country which is not lacking for a long and colourful history of uh, you know uh, frontiersmanship and libertarian type thinking. Um, that to me kind of underscores all the more um, just how precious those things are. Um, you, and, and this kind of came up during this, it was one of these trends that has been accelerating. And you and I have spoken about a lot of them over the past year, these trends that were already in motion and, and then the pandemic kind of kicked them into hyperdrive. And one of those things that um, I've noticed from abroad, looking back into both Australia and the US is, is just how uh, quickly people are willing or can be convinced into giving up rights that are really, really hard one and sometimes take a war, uh, a war of independence to, to claim uh, if, they, if they feel that their quote unquote way of life uh, is being threatened. Um, and, you know, you can see that quite conspicuously in Australia, uh, but even in a place like the United States where, you know, you have a Bill of Rights and you have these first 10 in particular amendments to the Constitution that guarantee things like you know, just in the first uh, in the first amendment, freedom of press, religion, uh, assembly, and speech, um, loosely loosely uh, summarized there. Um, that that that's something people in other countries don't don't necessarily have in such a formalized um, such a formalized manner. And things that I think people can tend to take for granted. Um, have you noticed that at all in the past year, a kind of willingness to cede those those rights in acceleration? Yeah, so formally people, I don't think if you ask people, they would say that they agreed to surrender hard-fought civil liberties. What happened is under the guise of an emergency, certain statutory power was invoked, especially in Australia under the Bios, uh, Biosecurity, Biohazard Act, whatever it is, from 2015. And we didn't realize the extraordinary power uh, people would have uh, to not, and, and there's no accountability to parliament or to elected officials. And, um, and so at a, you know, at a philosophical level, you can understand how 
invoking a permanent state of emergency or being permanently at war with something justifies the um, temporary <laughs> suppression of, of democratic norms or civil liberties or, or at the very bottom line, the suppression of, of uh, individual rights. Um, so that just seemed to go, go by without a, a flutter in Australia and actually with quite a lot of approval, particularly in Victoria where I was last year. Um, so people don't, uh, I think unless you have to defend those things or you experience them being taken away, maybe you just don't value them. And what we're finding out is that uh, some people value liberty and some people value security and the way the message is, is constructed uh, there doesn't seem to be any middle ground, even though, you know, ordinary people can talk about these things and not be at each other's throats. But um, but the the way the the support for uh, the pandemic policies has been manufactured is to say that it's a case of safety versus selfishness, whereas we would describe it as um, liberty versus authority. And uh, we're still there. I think it's only going to get worse and more pronounced because what this has shown is you can get a lot of people to go along with you if you <laughs> create the right message. So uh, whatever the next pandemic is, whatever the next war is, the playbook uh, is there. Yeah, some pretty, some pretty worrying precedents uh, indeed. So uh, m moving sort of um, more up to your, uh, your current place of residence uh, in, in the US, I'm going to actually fly up there next week so i'm keen to i'm keen to get a little bit of of um of forward guidance on what to expect there um are are people sort of getting more or less uh back to some kind of of normalcy at least in their day-to-day -day lives or is that kind of uh, location dependent state dependent uh, do you think i think it's location dependent and state dependent and it's person dependent as well you know some people some people in in states like texas and florida are probably maintaining social distancing wearing a mask and ordering uber eats or whatever they do to feed themselves whereas in other lockdown states there's probably people who are are living their life as normally as as they can given the uh, impositions of the public health authorities so I, I think you'll find what you'll find. I mean, what's interesting in the last week is is a computer hack has shut down a pipeline and people can't get gasoline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's a real thing. That's not a state of mind. That's you're running on empty. And, um, you know, when it starts to translate into the modif modifying people's behavior, the, the it, then it becomes a financial issue because, we saw earlier this week from the um, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics that consumer price inflation was very high um, uh, year over year, the highest it's been in 40 years, and uh, it exceeded expectations. And core inflation, which excludes food and energy, which are going through the roof for most people, that was also very high. It was above the Fed's target. So, you know, as another example, iron ore prices were up 10% in one day down in Australia on Monday. And, uh, you know, I saw a great joke on the internet that said it used to be that the airline classes were gold, silver, platinum, bronze, and now they're lumber, corn, oil, and Bitcoin. <laughs> you know? right. but, but the interesting thing to get into the weeds a little bit was that um, if you look at inflation expectations measured by something called break-even inflation, which is the difference between um, the nominal yield on a 10-year treasury and the inflation-adjusted yield, 
it's it's higher than it's been uh, since 2008. And what that means is it's inflation is becoming a psychological phenomenon now and not just we knew it was a monetary phenomenon because mm-hmm. we've been looking at M2 and we've been looking at trillions in stimulus and trillions in financial support for the financial markets but we hadn't seen that translate into people now saying oh crap i better go get some gasoline oh right. crap i better buy a house oh my gosh my food bills getting more expensive so you know the fed and its officials are fairly confident that doesn't matter. We'll let it run a little hot. Well, that's uh, historically been a disaster. So you've got, and, and, and in the meantime, you've got 7 million unfilled job vacancies with 6 million people receiving government benefits. So when you pay people not to work, as Bill said, they do a pretty good job of it. You, you, <laughs> so, you get what you pay for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it starts to feel a lot like uh, Jimmy Carter, or even earlier, 1972. And I think for investors, that's the interesting thing that the last time there was this big a difference between commodity prices and financial prices, there were two times, 1972 and 1999. And in 1972, it was the beginning of an inflation that was related to uh, the dollar being uncoupled from gold. In 1999, it was a c- cyclical and secular low, uh, and China was entering the World Trade Organization. So they were very different in terms of what drove the inflation. Uh, so this time, it, it probably will be also different, but it feels more monetary this time and less like a major disruption in the global economy. Although to the extent that it's that, it could be that supply chains and globalization itself uh, are have been exposed as being more fragile than we thought. And so you can get uh, breakdowns in those supply chains, which which cause prices to rise as well. Right, because of because there's a choke off of of reliable demand for highly uh, reliable supply for highly demanded uh, goods. Is that the idea there? Yeah, hundred percent. You know, and Tom Dyson, our friend with the Bonner Denny letter, was talking about that last year with shipping stocks and scrap mm-hmm. steel. You know, and and it, it just makes its way eventually into the retail economy. It starts uh, uh, with raw materials. It starts with how to get goods from point A to point B or how to get raw materials from point A to point B. But eventually uh, that whole process ends up in finished consumer goods and prices. And that appears to be what the CPI data show. And the stock market uh, is terrified of that as, as you would be. Right. And, and that's a, that's a very important distinction too, that you made then from, you know, going all the way back to, I know you've been following, um, it, inflationary you know the, the inflationary embers as, as they've been kind of um you know looking like it, at any moment could uh, could ignite a, a full-blown conflagration in the economy but it does take that very important step that you mentioned it, for it to go from for it to seep into the kind of collective psyche of of consumers and when they start to see just a little bit of an uptick in those uh, final produced uh, and finished products, then all of a sudden it's, you know, it can be a, a bit of a man's, mad scramble for the exit. But as you mentioned, going all the way back to um, Mr. Dyson's very keen and prescient observations, it'd be, I think maybe looking, well, it'd be eight or nine months ago that he was on the case with, with shipping stocks. Um, now that price inflation is starting to feed into what people are looking at when they look at their grocery bill and they look at their energy bill and they look at their, you know, for those of us who need to eat and use energy, <laughs> uh, we're, we're now seeing those kinds of things uptick, and, and 
I feel like that is historically the inflection point where where things tend to hockey stick, where where it can get, you know, it can go from uh, being theoretically manageable to practically catastrophic. Yeah, I think that's right. And and one of the one of the aspects about it is that for a lot of people, I couldn't tell you how many specifically, but to the extent that that there are still moratorium or moratoria in place on mortgage and rent payments, people aren't having to choose between food and the roof over their head. If they had to, if they had to pay both bills, it might be a much more difficult choice for people on the on the margin. And, you know, one thing we've learned in the last year is a lot of people are on the margin, especially if they can't go to work uh, and, and, you know, wages aren't rising. It would be wages are the other place to look. We've talked about it before that you, you're seeing people try to hire paying $15, $16 an hour without a federal mandate for minimum wage. They're happy to pay that because they need workers. Uh, this is certainly true here in, in, in um, tourist communities, in vacation communities in Colorado, they just can't get enough staff. And it's partly because there's no foreign workers coming in on J-1 visas because of the pandemic. Uh, The kids aren't working the way they used to because maybe their parents don't want them to or whatever. So, um, So there's massive pressure on wages in certain pockets of the American economy that's inflation as well. So, you know, all of the embers are, are kind of, uh, the Fed's blowing on them yeah. and, and it's warming its hands as stock prices go up. And meantime, normal people are like, my, my finances are on fire. <laughs> right, right. Not in a good yeah, way. I shouldn't laugh about that, but yes, it's, it's, uh, that's very true. So I was having a conversation with somebody about this the other day, particularly about the job market. And, you know, we had, we were kind of in the midst of a discussion, um, you know, more or less centered around what would be the government's appropriate role, um, it, especially with, you know, if there's a, something like a pandemic come along, it, does it have a, a, a temporary responsibility to tide um, industries over, particularly if it's been uh, the causal agent for their shutdown, um, you know, with whatever measures it, it deemed necessary in the moment. Um, and you know, we once we kind of extracted ourselves from that discussion and started looking forward to, okay, well, how long can the government remain as a middleman, um, you know, paying stimmy checks or or employment coverage or a job seeker or job keeper if you're in Australia before it has to let the labor market get back to uh, something like normal action and discover what is the appropriate wage. Um, I'm wondering how long can, in particular, uh, the US government, which has just doled out uh, or uh, something like, what is it, four, $4.25 trillion this year in programs and boondoggles and bonanzas and um, you know, unicorn candies and, and, and whatever else for everybody. How, how long can that uh, sustain before it starts to uh, have particularly adverse effects on, on the broader economy? Well, I, I think that's a, a good question in terms of whether or not that uh, largesse from the government uh, is in translates into uh, higher consumer price inflation because there's just more money sloshing around. So that it, it looks like that's what's happening. Certainly in the housing market, 
um, and maybe for certain niche goods as well. I can tell you though that it's also um, it's it's more insidious, I think, than just uh, a sort of ma- mathematical or mechanical limit to to how they can do it. The, I think it's credulity is the limit because when I look at it and I hear stories from friends in small business who are saying there's so much money available for the taking that you'd be an idiot not to make up a reason to get it. And so mm-hmm. they're getting, you know, not trivial amounts of money, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars for certain small businesses to support them without any documentation that it's necessary, uh, without any recourse to paying it back. So it's, it's fundamentally altered the incentive for people to take risks and, and engage in enterprise. It turns people into government rent seekers, whether it's at the wage level or at the small business level. That's really damaging to, um, to the long-term fabric of the economy when people say, oh, okay, uh, it's, it's not that we need to create a good or service and run a business and employ people. We need to figure out how to game the system. And uh, to me, that's one of the limits of, of how long you can do this. But let's not forget, this is what some people believe the, the proper role of government is all the time. This is how they think the government can fix an unfair market system or a capitalist system that exploits labor and exploits small business. So, so some people probably would like to do this forever because uh, they think that's, that's a better system. But, you know, in the meantime, uh, interest rates would be the one to watch because, you know, if you're going to get a 30 year mortgage under 3%, um, if, you do it right. You do it. It take the money out, borrow the money, and let inflation pay off the house. That's the that's the go to move. So until mm-hmm. until interest rates go up, like ten year interest rates, until people start to say, "Oh my gosh, the government has a GDP debt ratio of a debt to GDP ratio of one hundred and thirty percent. It's thirty trillion dollars in debt already. It's spending six trillion dollars in in six months. Maybe the cost of borrowing for those guys should be higher." That drags up borrowing costs for everybody else, unless you got the Fed that's trying to suppress all those borrowing costs because it wants inflation to pay off the government debt. It wants it to make it cheaper uh, to pay off all the money the government's already borrowed. So um, I guess that might be the question is, is who will control interest rates going forward now? Will it be the, the former bond vigilantes or will it be uh, the current criminals on the Federal Reserve? Mm, where where are the bond vigilantes? Uh, where, where where are they lurking right now? What can we, do you have a read on on uh, are you trolling message boards or forums and uh, uh, monitoring calls, seeing when we when we might expect some activity there? No, they're they're they've gone to ground and to ground. Uh, they don't <laughs> they don't exist because because why would you if if right. money was free and you could borrow and lever up courtesy of the Federal Reserve to make money in momentum stocks or tech stocks or mm-hmm. NFTs or SPACs or any of the speculative vehicles that have been going up double and triple digits, then, then it's discipline is not your problem. Making money now <laughs> as quick, as quickly as you can is your problem. So the idea that, that there's an external force imposing fiscal discipline on the government, well, it doesn't exist now. It'll exist if people think the government's position has deteriorated so badly that there's money to be made by expecting bond prices to fall. Uh, so when when they'll come back when they think there's money in it, right? Yeah, and uh, what's uh, I 
forget the fellow. What what, what was the um, the bank robber who was asked? You know, why why do you rob banks? And well, because that's where the money is. It's um, Willie something. What? Willie. Yeah, I, I want to say Loman, but obviously that's that's an Arthur Miller uh, <laughs> uh, death of a salesman. But anyway, um, so it, going back to to uh, just quickly because I've, I've I'm aware that I've used up uh, a bit of your time here, mate. But um, just just circling back, as they say now in uh, in White House press conferences, to that idea of uh, unsound money having its kind of corrosive effects on. On the culture of of working, of uh, you know, legitimate toil, of honest uh, capital formation, and functioning effi- efficient, actually efficient markets, um, you know, it doesn't seem like uh, like we can put the the toothpaste cap back on the tube or the genie back in the bottle or whatever metaphor you want to use there. So, um, I, I mean, I would have to expect that as more cheap and um and high velocity money makes its way into the broader economy that will continue to see a breakdown of that um of that you know honest and and that cultural understanding that a that a, a day's work is deserved of a day's wage and and it will just keep getting corrupted from here i i, I can't i mean is there a way out of this historically are there are there examples of you know where a country has gone to let's say this level of of debt to GDP or this level of money printing or um, this level of some other uh, government insinuation into the into the broader economy where they've been able to turn it around that you know of or is it kind of you know a, a, not to get too doomy and gloomy but but kind of a long march toward the inevitable here? Well, I mean, a lot of people would point to Japan as saying that you can have government debt to GDP levels of 200% of GDP mm-hmm. and still have a very high quality of life without creating a, a crisis in either the currency or in the bond market. And in, in that case, it's because the Japanese government or the Japanese central bank has, has supported the bond market and the domestic savings of the Japanese people uh, also has allowed the government to run those big debts because those people buy mm-hmm. bonds. Now that yep. came after a, uh, uh, a simultaneous crash in both real estate and equities uh, that affected a whole generation psychologically and made them so risk averse that they're ha- happy to accept a uh, either very low nominal yield on a government bond or in real terms, a negative yield because they're terrified of losing their money the way they did in property and stocks. This is so, up to the, the, the late 80s. Uh, yeah, the 89 peak in yeah. the UK. Uh, but I don't think those conditions are the same in the United States. One, the, the available savings of the American people aren't enough to finance uh, the government deficits. It requires uh, foreign buyers of treasury bonds. And mm-hmm. for now, there are plenty of them because it's the most liquid bond market in the world. And uh, you can still get a positive yield on some US securities, whereas you can't in Germany and you can't. And at some level, I think people believe that the United States government can't and would never default. And when you own the printing press, you do not have to default. You can, mm-hmm. you can simply print the money or you can tax the money from the citizens to pay bondholders. So at some level, uh, foreigners will continue to accumulate uh, treasury bonds as reserve assets or dollars. Same thing, really. So um, you know, from that point of view, it can go on for, for a while, but... Um, I feel like I said last time, you know, there are two transportation metaphors I used because we are going somewhere. We just don't know 
at what speed and 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 where. But uh, the there was a fire in the boiler room of the Titanic when it left Dublin or Liverpool, and they didn't tell the passengers, and they feel like the they actually had to run the ship faster to to burn up all the coal so that there would be no fuel left for the fire. So the ship was going faster than it ought to have, and the fire had weakened some of the uh, structures that were designed to to make the the ship safe. And of course, the other one is the takeoff speed for the old airplane that, uh, you know, once you commit, you've got to go, uh, you can't turn back. And I think our central bankers and our government have committed to both, both things. We're going to take off and we're taking this thing up as far as it can go. And we're going to keep shoveling coal in the boiler, uh, no matter what. And, um, that unfortunately, historically, there aren't a lot of examples where people voluntarily reverse that. They either lose access to cheap money, or they 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 go full Weimar and and they destroy the currency. So to me, it's binary. But you can say, look, one one of the two things has to give. It's either the dollar or the bonds. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, for investors, that's troubling because if it's the dollar, you don't want to be in cash. And if it's, of course, we we don't have any allocation to bonds right now at all mm-hmm. uh, in the bond or denning letter. And, and I can't see that changing anytime soon. But the question is, all right, well, what we do, what do we do with the cash? Do right. we, do we put it in a real asset? Do, and if so, what? So you could buy, you could buy uh, life rafts for uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's hoping to. You know, there was so much room on that door for both people. So much room on that door. Come on, but, Kate, selfish. But, Just, you know, that, that's, that is the question though is, in some sense, these these huge run-ups in digital assets and in companies whose sales have grown during the pandemic, even if their profits didn't grow, th- that does make sense if you, if you would rather not hold cash or if the cost of hold- I mean, cash is not a costless position. It's an investment position. And it Opportunity means- cost of, of you know, especially when you're sitting around looking at, uh, I mean, you know, we... Bill wrote about, uh, and uh, our colleague Chris Mayer shared a, a you know very terrible story about a well-known uh, value manager who who you know suffered through the um, through the last ten years of watching everybody at every other desk in his uh, on his floor making you know ridiculous returns on on um, on their assets, and you know I think people. It gets to people after a while if they're sitting around, you know, playing the playing the long game and um, and watching everybody else uh, everybody else's investment portfolios go through the roof. It starts to feel like, hey, I've got to get I've got to do something with this cash. I, you know, I can't just sit here and kind of wait for the government to fritter away the the value of this. I've got to get into something and I've got to hunt some growth somewhere. So it does it does come end up being kind of a self fulfilling cycle in some sense. Yeah, I, I guess I'd close with that too. Is that that um, when when the incentives in a culture have changed from long term thinking, prudence, uh, an analysis of a business from a from a, a balance sheet level to borrow as much as you can as quickly as you can and buy everything that's going up, that's really the only way to get ahead and beat what's what the, this this uh, this force that they've unleashed. Well, that means the culture and the economy. Uh, have have transitioned <laughs> or, or in a transitory state where you know honest virtues are no longer rewarded, and that's not just me complaining that I missed out on the bull market and calling everybody a crook or a speculator. <laughs> it's just that you know 
but like you said, those things take time. They, the, 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 there's a lot of decline in the nation, as Adam Smith said. So, um, you know, in the United States, all those things look like they're happening now. They're all visible, and and uh, there's many different aspects of them. They're in civility, and social media, news media, sport. You see them time and time again. But you know, we live in these times, and uh, we we don't have the luxury of reading about them a hundred years later and seeing what people did to survive. So you've just got to, you know, keep, keep abreast of what's going on, try to understand it and then, uh, and then make the best moves you can. And, and sometimes the best move is not losing money. And, and other times you, you know, you might have to take a risk whether you like it or not. So that's kind of where we're at now. I just bought copper last week and I'm looking at real estate in Wyoming, which has gone through the roof, you know? So I, even though I knew this stuff was coming, I just didn't pull the trigger on the real estate part soon enough. I thought I'd have more time. And uh, maybe that's the last thing is you, they're, they're, you have less time than you think just in life in general and, yeah. and with inflation. <laughs> yeah. so, so get cracking in other words. And, and uh, on that note, uh, I'll, I'll be headed up your way, as I mentioned earlier uh, in the conversation, Dan. So I'm really looking forward to heading out uh Heading out to Colorado, uh, we're thinking of buying an old, um, some kind of old American make car, like an old Jeep or some old, uh, um, I don't know, SUV will be on Texas roads for a part of the time. So you can't really go with anything, you know, midsize or even <laughs> midsize or lower. You just, you become a speed bump on those, um, on those big open highways. But yeah, we're thinking of maybe buying an old, uh, an old car and, and doing some road trips around the US. So it'll be good to get out to. Colorado and um, and beyond, uh, but mate, I, look, I look forward to catching up with you in person. Maybe we can we can do this over a beer out there at your your mountain vault hole when when we get there. Hundred percent, man. Safe travels, and uh, we'll talk to you soon and and see you soon as well. Good stuff, mate. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.